Hello, my name is Emily Jansen, and this is the Leadership is Female podcast. We interview women in the sports and entertainment businesses to teach you the tips and the mindset that will get you to the top faster. Marion Wright Edelman said, you can't be what you can't see. Let's bring visibility to women who are crushing it in their roles. Join us week after week, season after season, as we reach back to extend a hand to pull you forward. We will lead you forward because leadership is female. Katie brings 15 plus years of leadership experience to the sports landscape. As a decorated four-time Paralympian for Team USA, a two-time gold medalist, and an NCAA athlete, Katie has honed a tenacity for listening and learning from people. Through this superpower, she has crafted a successful career in the new NIL space working in college athletics. She understands athletes and how to leverage brands, having landed her own brand deals and crafted her voice in an athlete and influencer capacity. Today's interview is filled with stories of overcoming odds, leadership, and just plain going for it. Katie controls her own destiny and is shaping the next iteration of her career as a mom, assistant director of NIL at Stanford, and Paralympian preparing for her next Olympics. Let's go. Welcome to the Leadership is Female podcast, Katie Holloway-Bridge, Paralympian and Assistant Director for NIL Services at Stanford. We are so excited to have you today on the podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to talk to you too. So, okay, you are like a multi-talented, multi-faceted individual. Tell us who you are and what you do. So I, my name is Katie. I am a Paralympic gold medalist. I'm an amputee. Um, I've competed in the last four Paralympic games. I also was the first female amputee to play division one basketball in NCAA history. And most recently I landed at Stanford as the assistant director of NIL services. So both professionally and personally, I try to bring my whole self, um, everywhere I go and have just loved being able to compete and live in a career or professional career and do both. Okay, so you were an NCAA student athlete in basketball, then a gold medalist and four-time Paralympian for Team USA in sitting volleyball. How did the opportunity come for you to join Team USA in volleyball when you were a basketball athlete in college? Yeah, so I had the fortune to go to Cal State Northridge um, on a scholarship, and about halfway through my time there, the Paralympic team for volleyball came and trained at Northridge um, through some connections through volleyball. My athletic trainer at the time invited me to go introduce myself to the team. He's like, I think it'd be really great for you. And so I introduced myself to the coach. The coach called me after the season, said, we'd like to invite you to a training camp in March. They talked to my basketball coaches, made sure that everybody was on the same page in terms of my time. And then Um, When they offered me the opportunity to go to a training camp in Atlanta that year in March of 2006, I called my mom because, you know, at 18 years old, 19 years old, you you call your parents for everything. And they, my mom was like, I think this is a great opportunity. You should try. So flown to Atlanta and the rest is kind of history. I, it was, I was scared out of my mind. It was like one of the first times I'd flown by myself and by the first time that I had been introduced really 
physically to an adaptive sport where there was all these other girls um, that were amputees and we were playing in a convention center full of able-bodied volleyball where there's giant junior volleyball tournaments going on. And so I had to take my leg off in front of people. It was very scary. It felt like you're in a fishbowl. I didn't love the sport immediately, but I love everything about how it was changing my life and who I was as a person with a disability, as an athlete with a disability. So that's sort of my quick version of how I got introduced to it. And like I said, the rest is history, but really there's a lot of history there too. Yeah. A lot of history, a four-time Paralympian and gold medalist. Talk to us a little bit what it's like to be on Team USA, participate in the games and the competition, training, travel, teamwork, being a Paralympian. We chatted briefly about some of the, the awesome experiences that you get um, when you're uh, getting fitted for your your outfits, for um, walking in you know in in the parade, and just all that excitement around the games. What what was that like for you? Yeah. So being a part of Team USA is very unique experience that very, you know, a small amount of people get to be a part of. And I'd say being a part of the Paralympics for the last 16, 17 years, I've seen a lot change. And early in my career for me personally, it was all, you know, the first time I went to the games in Beijing, it was amazing. I was awestruck. I was, I fell in love. We didn't perform well, but I was hooked. The second games, I would, had been training full-time. It was all business. We went to London expecting to at least get to the gold medal match, if not win, and we lost. And that was very, very hard to come back and very depressing. So, And then between t- London and Rio, I started my professional career. And so I was balancing being a non what we call a non-resident. So now I am what's considered a non-resident for the last 10 years of my career here in the Bay Area, and I have to balance training and a full-time job. So I would say that like personally, it's it's a challenge to balance all the things. Um, and what a lot of people don't understand is that Paralympians and quite, quite a few Olympians, quite a big percentage actually need to have full-time jobs. So balancing both just comes a part of it. And um, it's such a crazy thing to be a part of the movement, especially the changes in Paralympics where I've seen in my time, um, the USOC changed to the United States Olympic and Paralympic Committee. I've seen them do uh, change equal pay for Paralympic athletes for bonus money, which I've been a part of behind the scenes advocating for that. And in 2019, I got to be the flag bearer, which is one of the best, um, most humbling moments because you actually get to walk in front of your peers who have voted for you to be that person. So in the 2019 para Pan Am games, um, I got to be flag bearer, which meant everything to me because it was like full circle moment. Like I had advocated for the people behind me and it was just a really special moment. So team USA is a, is a unique crowd and a unique club to be in. And I love it. I love competing, um, especially with my team and it's changed a lot. I mean, one of the the greatest things about the games is hearing stories about the athletes. And Katie, you just shared such an incredible story about being a Paralympian and becoming the flag bearer and what that meant to you and representing all of those athletes behind you and the, you know, the progress that's been made since you, you first joined um, Team USA all those years ago. Uh, I am not familiar and hadn't heard the term non-resident. So 
Talk a little bit more about um, what that means to balance your training and a full-time job. Yeah. So many athletes, a lot of people know the training style to be around the train sites. And so that's where athletes can train full-time at specific sites like Colorado Springs, Chula Vista, and Lake Placid, New York. But there's many other training sites, including um, where ours is in Oklahoma for sitting volleyball. And um, our resident athletes train there full time. So that's most of the, the schedule is like eight to 12 every day where they have practice and lifting and other activities weekly. And that's what we consider full time resident where they have houses to stay in. And I used to be there from 2008 to 2012. And now as a non-resident, I have to make my training myself. So I had to find a gym. Um, I have, I had to find a strength coach. I have to find my own recovery. I have to build it myself. And I have in the last 10 years here in the Bay area. So I'm a non-resident, which means just a category that gets less pay and less resources to athlete. And I travel back and forth, I should say to Oklahoma for our training camps, which are once a weekend um, or once a month in a weekend and then to our competitions as well. Wow. And you're a new mom. So not only are you working full-time, you're still training full-time, traveling once a month, um, but now you're a new mom. So absolutely have a full plate. What has the, the last couple of months been, well, I shouldn't say last couple of months because of course you were pregnant first. So what, what has this been like for you and, um, and how has this this like transition, this new chapter in your life, how do you think that's going to influence what's next? Yeah. Um, I've been very fortunate to take the last year off of competing so that I could focus on being pregnant and delivering a baby. Um, for me, that was a very important separation I wanted to have to have the experience of having my first child. And I, after Tokyo, to be honest, I wasn't sure if I was going to come back or I was going to retire. So now looking ahead, I've decided to return to, for my path to Paris and it is daunting. Honestly, I have not even started practicing yet again. I'm only three months post, um, giving birth, but I have practices on the schedule. I am, you know, working on my Peloton (laughs) exercises. I'm trying, trying to slowly make my way back. And I think for me, what that looks like is a lot of planning. I'm a very type A person. I need to be organized. So last weekend we visited my in-laws and they, we set everything on the calendar for when my camps are and when we need childcare and, uh, setting out, making sure a year ago when I was having a baby, asking my family and friends, which ones would be willing to help during practices, because A lot of people also don't know that with Paralympics um, and in sitting volleyball in particular, nobody plays in our country unless you've teach them. So my husband luckily plays volleyball and is a part of our local volleyball community. So he trains with me, which means that I don't have child care when I'm practicing, which is after hours and on weekends. So structurally, we have to have babysitting during the week and then child care when I'm away as well. So it's a lot of balancing things, but knowing that I have a village behind me and I've competed for long enough that I know I have to have a village and I know where that village is. And I find, you know, new people, a part of that village all the time. And I'm so grateful for that. Well, if we didn't shout it enough on this podcast, women are amazing. Like listening to you discuss what 
life is like for you um, to achieve and go after your dreams and thinking about what this is going to show your child is just remarkable um, on, on what, what their mom can do. I, I absolutely love it. So tell me what is uh, your favorite Paralympics memory and, and why? Oh my gosh. There's so many, I, I guess I'll just go with the cliche moment. Like the first time walking out to in the bird's nest um, in Beijing in 2008, where the whole crowd is chanting USA and there's 90,000 people in the stands and you're walking out the tunnel for the opening ceremony. Sorry to clarify. Um, and there's just a thousand lights on you and you're, ch- you're chanting USA and it like literally gives you goosebumps and it is the most alive feeling you've ever felt. So I think that's one of them winning obviously gold in Rio and in Tokyo were amazing. I never thought we were going to win in Tokyo going into it, even though we were predicted to win, given a huge amount of adversity that we faced going in. So those were probably some significant moments as well. Wow. It sounds, it sounds incredible. And you mentioned at the top of the episode, all the changes with the, the USOC and now the USOPC, since you've gotten involved, can you talk a little bit more about that and, and the importance and, and why we need to keep talking about the Paralympics? Yeah. I, first of all, I appreciate the question because this is kind of my soapbox, but I'm happy to explain because I think a lot of people, it's super important. A lot of people aren't aware of what the Paralympics are. And so we have to constantly say the word, in my opinion, and call me a Paralympian because they are two separate games. The word actually means parallel to the Olympics, um, which a lot of people don't know. It happens three to four weeks after the Olympic Games. Our branding is different. Our marketing is different. And our resources are significantly less than the Olympic Games. And so the more that we can say the word Paralympics, the more that you call me a Paralympian, people understand the difference. You know, the difference is that we all have physical disabilities. Um, we all play adaptive sports. There's different games um, that we play, different versions of the games and different disciplines. So it's super, super important to keep bringing that awareness because up until even 2018, you know, in Rio, when I won gold, I won $5,000 for my medal and Olympians earn $25,000 for their medal. Even today, my volleyball pay is on average, our Paralympic athletes are earning around $15,000, $16,000 a year and our Olympic athlete. And that's for training 12 months out of the year. We have one month off actually. So 11 months and our athletes train full time. And then our Olympic athletes are training four to five months out of the year because they play professionally overseas and they're earning $25,000 per year on average. So our disparity is very, very broad. And by the way, those are kind of outdated numbers. It may have changed recently, but we're definitely not equal still. And so all the more reason why it's so important to me to keep talking about these, to keep bringing awareness to Paralympics and what it is and for people to really understand we're elite athletes too. Uh, what an important conversation. And I'm honored to be able to bring more of that dialogue to life here on, on the podcast. And Aside from advocating for Paralympians and your day job, which we're going to get into in a moment, I want to talk about your mentoring um, of athletes, athletes, especially women and girls, to follow their passion and develop identity outside of sport. 
So what does this entail? Where do most athletes struggle? What resources do you think are necessary? And how much does ego or identity play into this from what you've seen and what has been the most helpful to these athletes to discover and define a new identity? Yeah, women athletes, I think all athletes in general, um, define their identity on their success of their sport. And that's just how our culture and our upbringing raises us is to define ourselves by how successful we are or not right in our failures. And so we heavily entrench our identity in who we are as an athlete. And it wasn't until after 2016 that I learned how to uncouple that, right? I am a whole person. I am a separate person. I have purpose outside of sport, but we don't teach that. And athletes don't understand that. And especially female athletes, when we entrench those two together, then everything becomes much more filled with pressure. When you're competing, you stop enjoying the journey. You stop being able to see what's in front of you, which is, Hey, I have a, I have perspective. Like this isn't all that matters to me. If I lose, I'm not going to be depressed because look, I'm now a mom. Now I have a full-time job. I have other people to serve in my life and other purposes to serve. So I think, um, it's a really big problem. I think athletes, just men and women struggle with this. Um, and I think what we can do to help our athletes, um, change this is, really teach them to have other pursuits outside of sport. So um, making sure that they're getting experiences, volunteering, getting experiences, whether it be short internships um, or even NIL opportunities that give them these um, outside of sport experiences that are life experiences that either light them on fire or don't and teach them a little bit more about who they are as a person and as a whole person outside of sport. I think it's such an important conversation. And I love what you said there about uncoupling the athlete and the person. And I think it's also applicable for many women who are so entrenched in the identity that they hold in their title of their job. And your advice is one that we can apply in, in that atmosphere as well. So thank you for really walking us through that. It's something to, to think about for sure in your day job. All right, you're assistant director of name, image, and likeness at Stanford University. How far has NIL come in the last two years and what trends are you seeing among athletes? NIL is amazing. I am so excited that, first of all, this is a new law in 2021 that took place and that we are seeing a new age of college athletics where athletes are put at the center of their own business opportunities. In the last two years, it's been wild and it truly is the wild west. Trends we're seeing are um, everything from marketplaces to deliver brand deals to athletes are a ton of businesses. There's probably over 50 that deliver uh, opportunities to athletes. There are collectives around universities. I would say there are, you know, the, the 2% are still earning the most. But one of the coolest trends that I'm seeing is because of social media influencing is also a part of our culture now. It's 
it is changing NIL and how it's done. And so for me as a woman, I love to look at the differences in gender of NIL and see our women are killing it. Why? Because they hustle. They know how to hustle. They know how they have to hustle. And in order to earn those brand deals, they do the social media influencing, which they were already doing before. And now they're able to earn off of it. So our women are killing it. And it is a huge opportunity in the NIL space for women to earn in um, that under the 98% and below, because whoever does hustle, whether it is um, men or women, they're earning because they're hustling. So it's an opportunity for all athletes to earn off of it. Um, And I would say that's the biggest trend I'm seeing is that we're not counting out women. We're actually seeing a rise in interest in women. Uh, Such a great story for this month as we're inside Women's History Month recording this episode and love to dive more into women's sports and and champion women. So what do you think is the most popular way that brands are engaging with these college athletes? The most popular way is definitely through social media. Um, It's so accessible and it's very easy um, for local businesses to engage with athletes. And that was, that's another trend that's happening um, quite a bit across the country because whether an athlete is from a hometown in Michigan or a small town in Washington, they can um, exercise their um, celebrity there saying, Hey, I am a ex athlete at this, um, at this prominent school and I'm from this hometown and now I love Joe's coffee shop, right? So they, and then all they have to do is a social media engagement. So I am seeing brands leverage student athletes through their social medias um, more often than not. And then local businesses as well, which is a really great opportunity because a lot of athletes don't feel like they have enough Um, following. And that's just not true. If your following is from a direct audience in your, um, whether it's your college town or in your hometown, there's an audience there that um, um, a small business would like to have. What's been the the biggest success story you've seen with, um, with one of the athletes from Stanford that has really made that connection in the community and, and monetized their name, image, and likeness? Um, we have a track and field athlete who was an entering freshman and she did really well in her, like in her world championships. Very, I, I don't know much about her career before that, but um, coming into Stanford, um, I was talking to her mom, I was talking to her and they were really leveraging their hometown connections before she even got to Stanford. And while she was at home before she stepped foot at Stanford. And so they had a billboard, she shot a commercial for a local PT company. Um, it was quite uh, the spectacle for a hometown, but it was exactly what I'm talking about, which was really, really cool. Um, and now she's doing amazing at Stanford as well and breaking school records. And so um, it was kind of fun to hear that all transpired before she got here, but it all transpired after her world championship success as well. And I think, you know, at the time she maybe had less than 10,000 followers, but her hometown was doubling down on her. Love it. At Leadership is Female, we are serious about supporting you in your career. That includes the tips to get you ahead inside your current organization or provide you with the next big opportunity in a new role. That's why we have partnered with Legacy Search, an executive recruiting firm specializing in mid to senior level executive searches across professional, collegiate, and minor league sports. 
Check out the openings listed at LegacySportsSearch.com or in our monthly Leadership is Female newsletter. Hint, if you have not signed up for the newsletter, head to leadershipisfemale.com. If you find a job listed at Legacy Sports Search that looks like it should be yours, email us at leadershipisfemale at gmail.com and we will introduce you directly to the opportunity. This is your career. Make the most of it. I don't know about you, but I love learning more about myself. If there's a quiz out there to help me better understand who I am, I'll take it. If there's a journal prompt, I'm using it. But how about a business that helps female leaders communicate effectively while inspiring confidence and trust in those you want to impact? Sign me up. Breakthrough Brands is unlocking clarity for women leading progress. They build leadership brands for women to discover what inspires them, define what drives them, and unlock how to share their brands with others. Do you want to gain clarity on your personal brand? Shoot me a note at leadershipisfemale at gmail.com or on Instagram, and we will introduce you to the women who will help you unlock your leadership brand. That's BreakthroughBrands.com. If you are listening to this podcast, I know you are a busy professional. We can agree we are always looking for products that are convenient and make life easier. Mobot water bottles are one of these products. It's a water bottle and a foam roller in one. I use the water bottle at the gym, staying hydrated in boot camp and then flipping the bottle on its side at the end of class to quickly foam roll my legs. It helps with recovery and gets me back to work faster. Get yours at mobot.com and use the code leadershipisfemale, all one word, to get 15% off. Support Lonnie Cooper, the female founder of this product, and support yourself. This is a must-have wellness water bottle. How do you think your experience helps you succeed in your role? So I love saying this to my athletes at Stanford. We have 36 sports um, and we have basketball and football, but we also have a ton of Olympic sports. And I love telling them, Hey, I'm a Paralympian. And I guess I bet you haven't heard of sitting volleyball or the Paralympics. And yet I have a top sponsor in Adidas. Um, And it's possible. And I had, you know, not very many following when I did get that sponsorship. I'm not saying that's exactly what will happen for them, but, um, through a lot of hustle and going to branding conferences and learning that you as an athlete, whether you have a big following or not can obtain these sponsorship deals. Um, it's possible. So my own personal experience, I've, I haven't worked with an agent. I had, locally, um, noticed when, you know, about, I don't know, five or six years ago, I needed more help monetarily. So I went to the, um, sports management school at, at, um, USF and met a business professor, Michael Goldman, who was amazing and asked him, Hey, can your class do a project on me for branding and sponsorships? And, um, so they did projects on me and helped me with my brand and helped, you know, figure out how to do the sponsorship um, aspect of your athlete career. And so I worked really hard on that. And I've had two main sponsors, Saj and Saj Mediterranean, which is a local restaurant that I reached out to before Tokyo and Adidas and a few other um, speaking engagements, which is another aspect that I think a lot of um, athletes should understand about NIL is like NIL can be anything you want. And for me, speaking engagements has been very fruitful using my NIL for that too. So it's a lot of personal experience that I draw from. um, And then obviously learning about the space through their eyes today and where they're at. 
that's remarkable. And I think one of the best ways to, to gain that trust with the athletes you're working with is like, Hey, I did it. And here are some of the keys to success. So what a, what a smart position for you to be in and yay for Stanford to be able to have you as, as a part of their team. I want to ask you about some of the hurdles that you've had to overcome in your career and which one of those was specifically remarkable and did it create a tipping point for you? Oh gosh. Yeah. So for sport career or professional career? Well, I guess we could touch on both because you are a 360 human and you're multifaceted and multi-talented. So I guess Katie Paralympian and Katie as, uh, as your current professional role. Yeah. So Paralympics, I would say definitely Tokyo was probably one of the hardest things I've ever had to go through. Um, with COVID we faced quite a bit of adversity as a team leading up. Um, we had a few members not be able to go within the two weeks before we left, we had to change out athletes, it was uh, touch and go whether or not our team was going to be able to go with COVID. And so getting there and facing all of that adversity was traumatizing to say the least in my experience and as team captain to hold the team together. So I have a lot of just a lot of responsibility and accountability in that role to keep our team together and to still win the way we did I was shocked, honestly, at that and at the outcome, because we also lost to China in the pool play, which we thought, okay, hopefully we could just get to the gold medal match. And then in the gold medal match, we were just hoping for the best and we actually won. So um, to have our team completely change two weeks before we leave was devastating. Um, I still hurt for the people that couldn't go. And so that was probably one of the biggest stories, like I would love to tell someday of like the whole experience, because it, there's so many lessons in leadership in there of, of how to engage your team, how to put aside, like push your emotions aside to face the, you know, your competition, the ability to love on your, the women around you to bring their best selves out still, even though they're hurting serious. Like I, I, one day, I think a couple of days into Tokyo, I found out another one of our very, uh, one of our teammates couldn't come because she tested positive and I just bawled the whole way to the gym. <laughs> and then we had four of us there in the beginning. And I just remember crying and crying and telling my teammates, I'm sorry, this is where I'm at. And them just saying like, it's okay. I understand for the loss of my other teammates and she brings so much energy to the team. So anyway, getting emotional now because it was just very emotional to have that loss and to have your team so wholeheartedly broken and then try to go onto the court and do something of that significance was a lot. Thank goodness we had our sports like there to bring, help me back to put my pieces back together for them. But Wow. That was my, that was my, you know, sport <laughs> adversity experience. And that just happened recently. So it was pretty raw still. And that was two years ago now, but. Yeah. And, you know, now I feel like we're finally in this position where we're starting to talk about some of these things because we feel more on the other side of, of the pandemic now that we're almost, you know, three years from that 
that March day where, you know, the, the announcements were going across the world of, of things being canceled, but, you know, thinking about an athlete, um, a Paralympic athlete working their whole life, you know, you're building up to these games for four years and then being told you can't go. And then here you are, Katie, as the captain of the team, you know, those lessons in leadership that you must've had to learn the hard way, right? Like that's, that wasn't the way it was supposed to be. I, I can't even imagine. Yeah. And, you know, leading in and as it was unfolding, feeling protective of trying to protect the remainder of the team, but knowing that you were, you know, having to have hard conversations with other teammates that felt wrong that, you know, and uh, just that all the reality of it was devastating for everyone involved. And so it just, it was, it was challenging. And and so many stories I've heard like that too, with other games, because we also had Beijing and that was even harder, I think for the winter Olympians and different in a different way. So very isolating for a lot of teams that were having to um, sequester themselves as well. So just, there's a lot of stories there that are untapped for sure. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that with us and just really you know, opening our eyes to the hurdles that um, you guys had to go through and overcome and, you know, those lessons in leadership on, on the really hard, difficult, unimaginable moments that, that you have to, to deal with. And then going on to win the gold, I can't imagine, you know, from the lowest of lows to the highest of highs, what that must've been like for the team. Yeah, it was, um, I mean, like I said, it was just traumatizing and, and, you know, broken for everyone and no more than the ones that couldn't go. And I still hurt for them because every day is a reminder that they didn't go the, when the team was successful and saying, Hey, we got this for going to Tokyo. Hey, this happened in Tokyo. And it still is very raw for them. And I can't, I just can't imagine. And so it, I still, it's still very hurtful for me and them, but no more than them for sure. Yeah. Wow. So speaking on your professional career, um, what was really the the tipping point for you? Yeah, I guess I would say the most recent one was during the pandemic, I was working at a VA hospital as the employee wellness coordinator um, during when the pandemic hit. And so my responsibility was to create programming for employees to become healthier and well. And so during the pandemic, the three or four months that I was still there during the pandemic, I did everything I could to try to create programming to help the nurses that were very, you know, everything was so still new that we'd had no idea about it. So I I would say that was one of the hardest things that I went through. And then I left because it was too hard and it was starting to get, um, it was hurting my mental health. I knew that I wanted to make a career transition. And so leaving a full-time job during a pandemic, when the games were pushed back was probably a really dumb move, but in hindsight, the best move for my mental health, I stepped away during the best time I could because it was, it was hurting. I was, I was too involved. I would say in my work, I was thinking that my purpose was going to save the world and it wasn't. And then I made a huge career transition to working with student athletes, student athlete development in college And for a year after that, um, I kind of took a giant step back and started interning and, and 
made a career leap back into college athletics and really helping college athletes. So very vulnerable time for me to kind of take a step back and look at what I was doing with my life. And then Tokyo was postponed and stepping away from a full-time pay during a pandemic, not knowing what was going to happen with the economy um, was crazy, but also the risk I was willing to take to really make a leap into something that I really cared about a lot, which um, I'm now doing, thankfully. But after Tokyo, I finally got this role for NIL, which in my opinion is a, the same thing as student athlete development, where we're taking athletes' identities, helping them really show the world and capitalize off of it with sponsorships and brand partnerships. Yeah. And you really went through the uncoupling exercise that you're now mentoring students through as well. Yeah. And I would say that's one of the things that I'd love to share with like women out there is this constant battle that I think we have now, especially as a mom, as an athlete, I don't know if there's a world in which we can have it all. And why is our culture telling us that we have to have a job that we're super passionate about that fills our purpose and be the best mom and the best athlete? I think our culture keeps telling us, oh, you have to have better pay. Oh, you have to win a gold medal. Oh, you have to be the best mom. Like in all areas, sometimes it's okay to have a job that maybe doesn't light you on fire so that you can be the best mom or the best athlete. And they're not this, it doesn't have to be all in one. And I think that's what I struggle with constantly is like, I want to be, have the most successful career and I want to have the most successful athlete career and be the best mom. And sometimes that's just not, um, why does our culture have to say that we have to be the best in every area? Like, I think it's okay to have a job that keeps you stable, keeps your family healthy financially, and gives you the time you need to be in all those places so that you can be the best version of yourself. Yeah. I think there's this, this feeling of impatience, right? Like yeah. we have to have it all and we have to have it all at the same time. But I, I think a lot of it came from we've said for so long, life is short, but it's not like life is long. And if you think back on everything you've accomplished in 10 years, you know, let alone 20 years, that was a long time ago, 20 years ago. And there was a lot of life lived in between, but when we're constantly told life is short, you know, seize the day, do this today. It's like, you feel this, this pressure to have it all and have it all at the same time. When I think if we can you know, give ourselves a little bit more grace and kindness to think about like the chapters in our lives and, and what is the most important thing for you right now in this chapter, and then focusing on doing that. Um, and, and I think everyone ends up a little bit happier when, when you take that mentality. It's much harder to sit with where you are and find the joy and find the success in where you are rather than look ahead and say, I want that. I want that. It's so easy to do that, but it's almost like you're fighting against the world or the people around you to be like, I love that my daughter is like, you know, three months old or almost three months old. And I love that I get to spend time with her. And I, you know, I'm not looking forward to, you know, I don't have to look forward to, you know, when she's walking or whatever, like, just sitting with where you are is much harder to do, but it's so much, but you can like, I love Brene Brown and all of her, you know, 
fear of joy kind of stuff. It's like, like live into your joy, live up to that and um, you'll be much happier. Yeah. I mean, certainly goal setting, but don't get so distracted by the what's next that you forget about what's today and taking time in, in those moments. And, you know, you've been a person who has really applied those goals and willpower throughout your whole career to achieve all that you have. You know, what has really been that driving force? Like, how do you have the the willpower to do all that you have accomplished? I think the two things that constantly drive me for the motivation that I have are one, proving people wrong. So I have a giant chip on my shoulder. When I was younger, I was bullied. I was picked on. I was told I couldn't do things. I grew up in a small community where I was the only person with a disability and I got cut from sports teams. So that has really ingrained something in me that lights me on fire to like do more and um, surpass all of people's expectations of me. Um, and I think the thing that drives me more now than that chip, because I feel pretty accomplished now and I feel like I've put my place on the, in the world. What drives me now is really being able to speak with girls, young women, um, and young people in general and get to share and impart my knowledge with them and them, you know, looking at, looking up to me and saying, you know, what do I do or facing different problems or challenges, just even at Stanford, I love talking to our athletes about, um, you know, how they can problem solve and listening to them and helping empower them to have confidence. I love being able to have a conversation about their NIL value and pushing them to think bigger about that. So that's what motivates me now is like, I'm like, I love to help the generation um, beneath me and that's upcoming to be, have that bigger confidence than I have ever had um, to be the most amazing woman that they can be. And I love uh, what you said there. I mean, your, your driver for your willpower was really finding your why and your why started off as, as proving people wrong. Like I can do it. And once you accomplish that, you've got literally gold medals to hang from your neck to prove, prove all the haters wrong. But then the second piece, finding your why is, is about this give back and it's something greater than yourself. And I, I just, I, I think like, man, you know, if you're struggling to find willpower to achieve, achieve what you want in your life, find your why. Mm-hmm. And that is what will, will drive you each day. Mm-hmm. So Katie, we talked a little bit about, um, you being a new mom, um, how has life changed since welcoming your baby and you are still on maternity leave. So we're going to wrap it up quick. Cause I know baby's going to be waking up from a nap soon, but how has life changed since, since welcoming, um, your baby and, and what do you think is next for you this year? Uh, life has changed tremendously. I would say I no longer have independence, <laughs> which I so much enjoyed when I, uh, pre-baby to be honest. Um, and every day is a lesson in acceptance. I love the word acceptance. Um, and my word for this year is actually imperfection in a way I did my little vision board, um, because life with a baby is just, um, you have no idea what you're doing. You're questioning everything. And yet, um, you're trying to be, have the baby be the best they can. And my baby Claire is the most, the most perfect baby. In my opinion, she hardly ever cries. She's like, goes to sleep at night on easy on cue. She's already sucking her thumb to self-soothe. Like 
she's a perfect baby. But for me, I'm always striving to be what I heard was an A plus parent. And that's some doctor said, just be a B, be a B. They're fine. So I, that's what's changed is just like, I am learning to accept more in different ways. And I really am working hard to be imperfect because life is just as good, um, if not better, when you can see things um, so imperfectly about you and yourself. And so um, looking forward to really practicing that this year as I start stepping back onto the court. So I was going to ask you what your best piece of advice is for women to apply today to level up tomorrow. Do you think it is embracing imperfection? Oh my gosh. I, I think it is. I think I mean, I guess I would say though, like love yourself. I think that's always been something that um, has stuck out to me is I really have to work hard to love myself. And when I love myself, I'm the best version of myself. And so actually that is probably the most, the best advice I can give to young women and girls is to love yourself. And that is practice. And that takes time and takes age, (laughs) to be honest, to stop caring what other people think about you and start defining who you are by, by yourself. It's beautiful. Where are you traveling to next? Uh, we'll be traveling to Dallas in, uh, over Memorial day weekend. That will be my first trip back with the team. And what is your pump up song? I want to say it's can't hold us by Macklemore. I'm a huge Macklemore fan. And, uh, he's from Seattle and where I'm from. And that's probably one of the biggest ones. And what is your favorite quote? Uh, you control your own happiness. I learned a long time ago from it's one of my dad's quotes, um, that, you know, I, I wasn't happy as a, um, a young person. I hated who I was as a person with a disability and, I was just angry all the time and I'm just such a much better person when I'm happy. And so I know that I can control that, um, in every aspect. Oh, Katie, I can't say enough amazing things about this interview and what a blessing it's been to have you on the leadership is female podcast. Where can we fall along with you and your journey? Yeah. Um, well, first of all, thank you so much for doing this podcast because I just, want all women to feel empowered and confident to be whoever they want to be. And I'm just, uh, I love learning about leadership from other women too. So I appreciate you and all you do. Um, for me, you can follow me on Instagram at K S Holloway, um, H O L L O W A Y, um, which is my maiden name, Katie Holloway bridge, or, um, I'm on LinkedIn for those that want to professionally seek me out, um, under Katie Holloway bridge or Katie bridge. Amazing. Well, thank you. And um, we're so excited to follow your journey and um, appreciate you and all that you're doing for for athletes, uh, Paralympic athletes, NIL students, um, leading women forward. You are incredible. Thank you. Thanks. With that, let's get into the top four takeaways. Number one, the identity of what you are doing can become who you are. When athletes transition out of the sport, it's important to uncouple the person with the athlete. This is applicable to a business person who is totally entrenched in their job too. Number two, to uncouple your identity, find other pursuits outside of sports, including volunteering and life experiences to find out who you really are. Number three, women are killing it in the NIL game. In some major universities, women are bringing in 3X men. 
They are utilizing social media to leverage local celebrity. Use this as inspiration to level up. And number four, every day is a lesson in acceptance. Love yourself. Thank you so much for spending your time with us today. Time is your most precious resource, and it means the world that you spent it with us. Please help us reach more people who need to hear these interviews by hitting the subscribe button and the five-star rating on your iPhone. Do you know someone who could benefit from this interview? Please share it. Take a screenshot and post your Instagram stories, copy the link and share on LinkedIn, or text that link to your colleague. The Leadership is Female podcast exists to showcase female leadership in sports and entertainment and give you the tips to level up. We will extend a hand back to lead you forward. Extend the same hand by sharing this with someone who needs to hear it. One last thing. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Leadership is Female. Now, take this lesson and run. Let's go. This podcast was recorded and edited by Emily Jansen, public relations by Paige Hegedus, and distributed by Anchor FM.